What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with J.D. Roth, co-CEO of Good Story Entertainment. Good Story is the new venture that J.D. has with partner Adam Greener and manager to the stars, Scooter Braun. We recorded this a few weeks ago uh, at the Good Story office. Uh, this is a special episode for me, as you will find very early into it. Uh, I got my start as a production assistant on a couple J.D. Roth shows. Of course, J.D., the co-founder of 3Ball, the production company behind Biggest Loser, Beauty and the Geek, For Love or Money. We talked about his sale to iWorks. We talked about whether or not it's harder now to sell shows than when he started out. Also, why he never rehearses before pitch meetings. A slew of conversations with J.D. But quick, before we get into it, programming alert. Next episode... I'm turning the tables. My good friend Matt Shanfield will join us. Matt Shanfield works at IPC. You may remember him from the Jonathan Koch episode. Matt Shanfield is going to be interviewing me. So if you have any questions that you want to submit, hit me up, jimmy at maineventmedia.com. This could be a horrible, horrible mistake. But for now, this is my sit down with J.D. Roth. I hope you enjoy it. So I'd like to start with a little story time here, if I can. Okay. I like story time. Uh, it's 2005. Wait, move over here, because I'm like I'm like having to like bend my whole body here. We're, yeah. We're here at the Scooter Braun production. What is it? Scooter Braun. It's the Project? Scooter Braun factory of brilliant talent. The the whole thing is Scooter's office. Yeah, and and this is where we are as well. But this is a listening room right here. So people come into this room to listen to for the first time to a, a mixed album or a mixed song or something like that. So big artists have sat in this room. I told Adam Greener when I first got here, I saw him in the lobby. He greeted me and I said, "Everybody here must not know you are definitely not cool enough." To be in an office like this. <laughs> How did he take that? He was like, oh, totally, don't tell anybody. He was like, you know, Adam, was like, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Um, all right, so, picture, so story time. It's 2005. I am a lowly production assistant on the set of a show called Beauty and the Geek, and I have been assigned the casting wrangler. So as this happens every once in a while on house reality shows or competition shows, the cast had started to rebel. The cast has started to turn a little bit on production. They started whining. This happens from time to time. And they decided the only thing they can do to steer the ship is to call in the EP, to call in a man who knows how to get everybody to play nice, to get everybody back on track. They needed a leader. So this long car pulls up to the set, shooting this in kind of on the outskirts of Koreatown in this, this house, and J.D. Roth shows up to set. And I had seen this man, J.D. Roth, on TV growing up uh, as a host. And little did I know he was now this big-time producer because I was fresh out of college. I didn't know this whole reality TV thing was new to me. And I watched you give this speech that started, like, kind of stern but fair, making clear that there are thousands of people that auditioned to be in this show that would gladly swap with any of them right now to be in this house and have a chance to earn money. And then by the end of the speech, after kind of you know, lightly slapping their hands, you gave this like amazing rah-rah speech to get the whole cast. And by the end of the speech, the cast is apologizing to you <laughs> and, to, and, and, and to the, and to the, the casting director and to the showrunner. 
saying, we'll be better, J.D., we promise. Thank, thank you. And they're thanking you for the opportunity. Cut a few, a few months into the future. The same scenario goes down on Biggest Loser 2, season 2. And I'm again in the same position. And I'm the casting wrangler. And unlike other shows, this is a cast that are some of them are working out for the first time in their lives. Some of them are dieting for the first time in their yeah. lives. They're not around their family. Um, and they start rebelling. They call J.D. And again, this beautiful long car pulls up <laughs> in Simi Valley uh, where we're shooting on this ranch. And J.D. comes in and you give the same speech. Not like identical, but like the same type of speech. And by the end, everybody was flying right. Everybody was honored to be there and was reminded of the opportunity that the network and you guys had given them. And I remember after witnessing that twice, I was a J.D. Roth lifer. <laughs> from from then on from then on out and and i don't know if guys like you ever this ever, ever enters your consciousness like you never think about the pas that are watching or who might be in a control i think this is a good lesson for anybody listening you never know who's in your orbit when you're on set when things are heated in a control room whatever it is and the memories those people and the stories they are going to tell later about you and that is the story i've told about you this is going on like you know, 14 years now or something like that, 13 years ago. It's a story I've told about you, and it's stuck with me ever since. I don't know if that embarrassed I, I, you. And I just wish that my kids and my wife would, would, would be just as inspired, you know what I mean, when I make these speeches. And then they, my boys will roll their eyes. I'm like, you know, I get paid to make speeches like this. Right. Like this is – we rally the troops, and they look at me like I'm out of my mind. You know, so it's, it's funny that that's your recollection of it. But, but is this like – were those just – odd moments where that happened or was that something you had to do every season of every competition I had, show i had to do that multiple times every season of every competition show that was like my sweet spot because to me the tv was secondary the people changing their lives was the priority and they had to realize that that's what we were there for mm. it was a social experiment whether it's you lost a piece of your life that you wanted to get back desperately like on the biggest loser or don't judge a book by its cover on beauty and the geek these were important life lessons and i really thought that i was a sociologist right. you know what I, mean? I really thought that i was changing these people's lives and i still feel like i i have mm. um, and so that was an important part for them to soak in the experience and take it all in and do it the right way and i and i talk about respect with my own family it's like i'm going to respect you until you give me a reason not to respect you right. and then the conversation is going to change it's always uh it's done with love but it's also done in a way where you you have boundaries and you know not to cross them as you were coming up as a producer now I'll, I'll go i'll go a little earlier i mean the, my earliest memory of you and many people my age i'm 37 was funhouse right yeah when you were hosting that and that went for a few seasons right of yeah. uh, almost 500 episodes four seasons that is, wait seriously yeah and it was syndicated it was. Uh, it was syndicated in afternoon, Monday through Friday. I was a student at USC. I had been an actor my whole life. Okay. Um, but I got this part, and it was supposed to be 22 episodes. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll continue to go to USC, do the 22 episodes. We shot five a day. Right. So you're, you're talking about not that many tape days. And by the end of the second week of the show airing, it became the number one kid show in the country, and they ordered 170 more. <laughs> And I, I, this is no joke. I went from my dorm room in USC yeah. to the cover of Teen Beat in a month. You were in Teen Beat? Wait, Tiger Beat or Teen Beat? Teen Beat. And <laughs> I was in Tiger Beat as well. And, and there I was, like, from my dorm room to that overnight, I literally couldn't go anywhere. My life had completely gone upside down. I'd walk into a mall and need to be taken out by security. Isn't that incredible, though? Like, these are shows that, like, other people in our business 
probably aren't even aware of Funhouse, yeah. right? But now you, you find this younger crew coming behind you that completely grew up on the show, and yeah. it was like a big deal. Yeah, like I that, still, that was like, every day I hear it was like, it Yeah, people. it was like that, that Double Dare yeah. era, like that just burgeoning era of like Nickelodeon. And and Disney like competition shows like that wasn't even like really fully formed yet. No, and kids had to rush home because if you didn't see it at four o'clock you're when done. it was on, you had to sit, wait till the next day. Yeah, you're done. So it was such appointment viewing back then, which obviously now kids are their own programmers. It's totally changed. Right. So at that point, you're doing hundreds of episodes of TV at a very young age. Yeah. Did you have a mentor at that point that you were kind of learning from, whether they were conscious of it or not? You know. I, at that point, I didn't, but I always wanted to be a host. Okay. So when I was a kid, I would roll up the TV guide when they still had the TV guide rolled up at your house, and I would interview anyone who would come to the house and use that as, like, my microphone. Come on. So the mailman would come. I'd interview the mailman. Come on. Oh, yeah, always. And, in fact, when my parents joke about when we would watch, like, Wheel of Fortune or something like that, they were trying to solve the puzzle, and I was repeating Pat Sajak's lines <laughs> as if – Almost as if they were from memory because they say the same thing every day. Right. So I had always wanted to be a host on those shows. It was never – it wasn't a surprise to anyone that was I ended Pat, up on the game show. Was Pat like the Holy Grail, Pat Sajak? For was- sure. I spent a lot of time with Pat, and he would always laugh, please take my job. How much longer can I do Wait, this? Wait, why did you spend time with Pat Sajak? Well, I mean, game show hosts kind of knew each other. Really? And, yeah, and you'd shoot but shows. But you were so young. Like you were, were yeah. you on the same lot? We were on the same lot at one point, okay. and then he uh, and, and spending time with him, there was always going to be like a younger version of Wheel of Fortune, or you know, a host was going to take over his job. So I spent a lot of time with Pat. By the way, totally, people don't know this how talented Pat Sajak is. Yeah. You see him on a game show, you're like, oh, he's a game show host. He's not. Yeah. He's one of the smartest, funniest, wittiest guys you will ever meet. Right. I think it's unfair what happened with his talk show mm-hmm. because he's brilliant. I, mean, I think a lot of people forget that you were also the, the voice of Biggest Loser. I was the voice of The, of the Biggest Loser. Right? Yeah. You yeah. were the narrator, right? I am. I think a lot of people forget I that. Am. Yeah. So I, if- I did a lot of voiceover work. So I was signed with General Mills when I was a teenager. Okay. I did every – catch Lucky. He's got Lucky Charms. I did every commercial for them for years. I did um, – trying to think. Oh, I was uh, Johnny Quest. In the New Adventures of Johnny Quest, it's 65 episodes. And I grew up watching Johnny Quest. Then all of a sudden, I was Johnny Quest. That's amazing. Like, it, it was amazing. And George Siegel played my dad on the show. <laughs> and Robert Patrick, you know, played one of the other lead characters. So to, to hang out with these incredible, you know, pieces of talent and even be in the same room recording these episodes was such a gift. Okay, so clearly performing was your first love. But if I, if I can make a deal with you right now, J.D. Roth, and I was like, you can only do one for the rest of your life, host or produce, what are you doing? Well, does it come along with jobs as well? Yeah, you you will have guaranteed work. Oh, a hundred percent. I would host. You would a hundred percent. Let me just take a guess. Okay, is it because hosting you're just in control of yourself, and as long as you nail your mark and nail your lines, you're good. And with producing, you have all these other variables that you need to worry about and concern yourself with. Well, close, but a good host is producing. Mm. They're live producing mm. in the moment. Mm-hmm. And a, a good host knows when to get out of the way and just be quiet. A good host knows how to move the show forward. It knows how to highlight one specific moment. It's a little bit like um, a point guard. You know what I mean? Sometimes throwing that no-look pass feels so good or pulling up for the jump shot or, or knowing when to slow the game down. It's, it's being aware of all the players around you and everything that's going on at the same time and treating it like it's happening in slow motion to you. Like there's a, there's a great um, story that Joe Montana tells, which made – it's exactly why I love being a host. 
So it's the it's 49ers. Wait, is this, is this the John Candy story? The, this is the John Candy story. I'm a big 49ers fan. Okay, this is so it. Th- this is my favorite Joe Montana anecdote as well. Th- this truly is what it's like to be a host, which it's the Super Bowl. It's, you know, you're down by a few points. There's It's the two-minute drill. Right. It's the biggest 100-plus million people in the, the United States. watching. Everyone's right. watching. Right. All the players are nervous. They get in the huddle. Everyone's panicked. Sweat's pouring down everyone's face. Joe Montana looks up, and in the front row, he turns to everyone. He goes, is that, is, is that John Candy in the front row? And the guys in the huddle go, yeah. And he goes, great, on two. And they go and, and they win the game. And yeah. because he had to identify in that moment the stress, mm. the uh, nervousness, the tightness that all the players were feeling. And in that moment, he had to identify it and then also produce a moment to change the energy. He needed to know what they needed to hear. Exactly. To get in the that best moment. results out of them. Right. And a yeah. really good host does the same exact thing at the exact right time. When you think about the Dick Dawsons of the world, they, they're legends. They knew when to push, when to pull. They were pulling all the strings. And when it's done right, there's a beauty to it. You know, nowadays I don't think people appreciate what it – oh, just get a celebrity, teach them how to play the game, and they'll be a game show host. That's not the way it works. Mm. You know, these are muscles like over thousands of episodes that you perfect. And it's really someone who identifies and, and understands what it takes to do that – are the people that make it look the easiest. So what was the first producing vehicle? So you're, you're now known as a host. You're, you're in that stratosphere now. It's hard to make the conversion, right? And it's hard for people yep. to take you seriously when you start as talent, right? Oh, yeah, for, not, right? For, for sure. So you had to work double time then to be accepted. So what was the first? And I was young. You were young. You came in 20 really years young. old. So what was the you first know? thing you produced or, or sold or developed? So I, well, I spent a little time with Dick Clark. And, um, you too. And Arthur Smith. Uh, Dick's amazing. And I had uh, Bob Bowden. Bowden's the best. He's Bowden, an original. He's the best, right? Yeah. Uncle Bob's the best. Yep. But he had been groomed under Dick Clark. Arthur Smith just raved about Dick Clark. Was that... I just had some conversations with him. That's cool. And they were so uh, genuine. you were following in his footsteps, though. I mean, yeah. He was the it host was so that made real. the transition. Yeah. yeah. And, and he said, look, um, being a meat puppet... <laughs> Is not going to last forever. That's the host? And that, yeah. Okay. And that ownership was everything. Mm. And that, that really shows your chops. You know, do you have the ability to kind of jump over just being a face and to do more? Mm. And I, I really took it seriously. I listened, obviously, you listen to every word that comes out of Dick Clark's mouth. Um, and I created a show that have, uh, it was a Saturday morning dating show for, for teens. And I pitched it to NBC. Now, here I was, 21 years old. I wasn't old enough, really, to do anything. And a lot of the executives at the network had kids my age that they didn't trust their car to on the weekends. <laughs> you know, so here I'm asking for millions of dollars right. to do this show. And you look young. And I, at 20, 21, I probably looked 15. And I think that I was pitching passion. And I truly believe that's the one thing in life you can't teach. You either have it or you don't. And, and I wanted to make my objective in pitching is always to make no the hardest thing for someone to say. Mm. They may, of course, they're going to say it more times than they're going to say yes. Right. That's the business. We all get that. But I want to make the no so painful for them. I want to create <laughs> such guilt in them for having to say no that it's going to hurt them. And so I, I just keep pitching with as much passion as I can, which is much enthusiasm. And I really believe in it. Do you ask, okay, I, I want to take a little sidebar here because i was going to ask you about pitch philosophy right yeah and your strategy in a room do you do the thing when you go in even now that you actually ask them what they think in the room because there's so many times you go in and you pitch right and they ask you questions and they say okay cool well let us talk and then you then you you leave and it's like the most it's always an awkward exit (laughs) right um what i started doing eventually once i had a rapport with these buyers and i knew them and we were friends 
I would be like, wait, hold on. You haven't told me what you think. Do you, do you like it or not? Like, you can tell me. Like, I'm a big boy. Like, actually pressing their feet to the fire and actually give an opinion in the room as opposed to the... Did it work? It helps because then it actually breaks it. Now we've gotten out of pitch mode, and now we're actually having a real... People cr- mode. Creative conversation. And they just it drops their guard completely. And they're like, okay, here are, the, here are the, the doubts I have. And those are the doubts that they would take into a dark room somewhere during group think sessions at the network that I would never be able to be part of and would never have an argument for. So I'd rather have it now and make my case for any doubts you might have other than here two weeks from now. That I love that. See, I can learn something every day. Wait, so have you never done that? Where you just ask I, me, I like, what do you think? For me, I'm not asking you if you're going to buy it. I'm asking you what you think of the pitch. It's a performance. Right. It's a – I'm hosting a, a pitch. That, yeah. That's how it works. And when I go in, I'm I, – and I don't prep for pitches. I don't practice. You I don't? don't? Rehear- no, not at all. No, Wait, hold never. on a second. Hold on. That's, that's, I've never you heard You can ask before. everyone that's ever worked with me. I've never heard this before. You being such a conscientious guy and such a hardworking guy that is detail-oriented on the yep. shows you create, yep. the fact you don't rehearse the pitch. It'll be like rehearsing the speech for the contestants on all those shows. Right. It has to come from the heart. It has to come from a real place, authentic place. And so you know if I'm ready to pitch a show, I've thought about this show for so many weeks. I've thought about the creation of it, how I'm going to make it, how I'm going to produce it, mm-hmm. how it's going to air. Mm-hmm. I've thought it through so much that there is no angle you could come at me that I'm not ready with the answer that I truly believe is the, is the right answer. Mm-hmm. So when you prepare something that much, right. you know, it, it's like when you fall in love with your wife, and you're going to tell her how much you love her. You don't prepare that speech. That, that comes from the heart. Yeah. This is the same thing. I love what I do. I love telling stories. So for me to go in there, if I can't just from the hip or from the heart be able to speak about a format inside and out, backwards and forwards, upside down, then I'm, I shouldn't be out there. Okay, so you're 20 years old. You pitch this dating show on yeah. Saturday mornings. To it, Linda Mancuso, by the way, does it, who was tough. Who's tough. She was a tough executive. Um, she passed away years later uh, mm. from cancer, sadly. Um, she became a really good friend. But she was not an – you know how there's warm rooms? Yeah. Linda was not a warm room. <laughs> and if she didn't like something, you didn't have to ask her, hey, so what do you think? At, at this, she would tell you. So at, this, at this point, is Saturday, is Saturday morning still in control of NBC or have they outsourced it to like Saturday morning Cuba sti- or nope, whatever those still are? in control okay. and in fact saved by the bell. And somewhere okay. currently now at NBC my- is a poster with Mario Lopez and me. If our shirts aren't off, they're mostly <laughs> off, back to back. And it says – the you know the the two guys of Saturday NBC what, and, and what there we it? are. What was the show? Uh, so the sh- the show was called Double Up. Okay, and it was a dating show for for teenagers where um, a brother would come on and 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 look at three girls to uh, get and pick one for to date his sister. And it was really would, would, would pick fun. Oh, three guys to date a sister. Three guys to date a sister. Sorry, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and the contestants that we had would shock you. It, they all got their first start on the show. Jennifer Love Hewitt was a contestant on the show. Get out. Brittany Murphy, contestant on the show. Oh, my God. And, I mean, this goes – so Jennifer Love Hewitt maybe five or six years ago was doing one of the late-night talk shows, and I had the tape of the show, and I sent it to her dressing room for her to watch it to remember all those years, you know, before. That's so cool. In the early 90s when, uh, when, when we did the show. And the show did really well, and it worked. But – the, the thing that you don't – that you forget back in the day when you're just getting your start, you would do anything yeah. to get a show on the air. I was the youngest executive producer in NBC's history. Sure. 
at 21 years old. Sure. I had this show. I, I, I would have done anything for it to work. And we sacrificed everything. It was all in. You know how that, that feeling of no blind, like full blinders, no, uh, I guess, 360 approach. There's, there's no life. There's no kids that you have and drag. There was just the show. Right. And it was so pure. A time when you could wash yourself inside and out of a show in a format and just get lost in it. You know, it's like like so. A what you're saying has, is what you're saying is as a producer, don't have kids. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> it's different. You know what? I'm, right? You can never have that that one focus again. Now, yeah. the flip side is is that opening yourself up to that part of your life allows you to tell better stories and probably makes you a more tolerable person for everyone around you. Definitely. Too. Definitely. Yeah. And you understand what other people are going through in their life that you could never relate to. Yes. Okay, so I there is a particular show of yours that I have fond memories of. And I was probably too old to even be watching it at the time. I know what it was. I can tell you. You know what it was? Endurance. Endurance. Yeah. Endurance. I fucking loved Endurance, man. It was on Saturday mornings. I believe it was NBC as well, yep. right? Yep. And I would watch it. So I played college football at this small school called Cal Lutheran University. It's in Thousand Oaks. And we would have our morning breakfast. At your size? I used what to be, position did you this play? This is before I was a dad. I was 20 pounds heavier. I was a slot receiver. Wow. It's Division three. You must have been fast. JD, it's Division three. You still must have okay. been fast. I was okay. Division anything, you must have been quick. I did stunts on Friday Night Lights. No way. Yeah. That's awesome. Later on. I, later on, because they, they needed grown men to look like high schoolers and pads. So I, <laughs> I checked that box. So, so anyway, I, we would have our team breakfast, because we played our games mostly in Saturday afternoons. Um, and I'd have breakfast. I'd go back to my dorm room. And there'd be like two or three hours before we have to report to the locker room for pregame. And I would make sure to be back in time from breakfast to watch Endurance. Because I just loved – see, what I always loved about shows like that, and there's only so few of them, I always thought that the magic of producing for kids um, or tweens or whatever was not to produce down to them. That's but right. to place them in adult situations. That, you nailed it. Right? Nailed it. And let them just live it out on their own. That's what was great about Bug Juice when Bug Juice came out on Disney. Like it was the first real docu-series. It's just kids at summer camp. But it didn't produce down to them. They didn't try to make it quirky and just for kids. Those could have been anybody the way they produced the show. Just happened yeah, to be You teenagers. know, I still have the napkin at the Chinese food restaurant that Todd Nelson and I created that show on. Mm. We created the whole show in under an hour. And we framed that napkin after the, you know, the show was nominated for seven Emmys. Wow. Um, and that, that show has such a special place in my heart. Explain what it is. For those um, so yeah. it was kind of... I always looked at television as the first wave, which was prime time and adult programming, and then the second wave, which was kids programming. So I would see kind of what was working in the landscape, and then I would try to create an original show around the same kind of theme. Mm -hmm. So teaching kids about endurance, because it's like a muscle. If you've never had to go find it, how do you know that it's there? And so I would say, you know, not, people don't know how they affect other people. They hide behind their phones and their computers and the mall and their family. But if you're really exposed emotionally and then you have to go back and live with that person and see how you affected them, mm. you may learn what it feels like to go through something like that. Yeah. So the whole show was taking kids away from their parents as teenagers, putting them on this island in a, a girl hut and a boy hut teams a boy and girl on each team teams of two, right. and then having them compete live away from their parents for a month right which was a long time how old are they 13 to 15 right 
and they're teamed on up an with, island, and they're teamed up with someone from the opposite sex, which they're they all may going not through, like. They're all going through adolescence. Exactly. They have to work together as a exactly. team. Right. Feelings were hurt. Yep. Friendships were made. These are kids now who you're talking 15 years later are still best friends and in touch with each other wow. because they connected on a different level. And so again, the TV that's there, awesome. Ratings are great. None of that ever really mattered to me. It was the human connection to see other kids, other adults, other people, different walks of life connect on a different level with each other. If you do that and you tell a great story that way, people will always watch your show. Where'd you shoot that? Uh, every season was done somewhere different. So really? we did one on the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. They actually let you the, travel? Oh, yeah. I mean, this we is We did Saturday one morning. in Hawaii. Wow. We did, it shows you, once again, you don't need a million dollars an episode yeah. to make a hit show. And, in fact, the bigger audience for that show were college kids. Really? Oh, yeah. We got tons of letters and emails. Okay, and, now I feel much better. Oh, yeah. It was, a, <laughs> it, it was the biggest part of the audience huh. was college. And, in fact... All of the guys who worked on Survivor and other shows would work for half their rate right. to work on Endurance because they loved it so much. So watching these kids mature right before your eyes was pretty special. Unbelievable, man. Was that the formation of Three Ball? It was. That was the first like three-ball show. I that? Yeah, it was pretty I'm, I'm good. Look, I'm looking for hosting. That was pretty good. A, a hosting side off here. In fact, the first season we did on Catalina. Okay. I can see that. Right? We had to try keep it close enough to home. Still never been. Oh, you got to go. I've still never been. Yeah, Catalina's cool. The kids will like it, right? Oh, yeah. They're a little young. You think Three so? Three and one, yeah. Okay, I gotta wait, wait till you till... can enjoy it with them. Wait till they can really swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait yeah. till you're not changing a diaper in the middle of a boat. Yeah, ride. that's what I say. Like people talk about vacations with their kids, and again, I have a three-year-old and one-year-old. Going on vacation with your kids is just like it's just taking your work on the road and spending much more <laughs> money than you would on a normal weekend. And without having your normal stuff around you, yeah, that you need. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's being just as inconvenienced, if not more, at a place you're spending much more money to live for. Two and days. then they go to bed early, and there's not another room for you to go into. So you and Todd create endurance. Yep. And what was the formation of three ball? Well, I, I remember specifically sitting Todd down and saying, dude, we're 31 years old. If it doesn't happen now, it's never going to happen. Mm. So we got to start a company. We got, we got to do something. Mm. And Todd had just been offered uh, to run all of the challenge department at Survivor. Oh, and, I didn't know that was his background. Yeah. And okay. he was about to take the job. I'm like, and everyone knew, you remember, everyone knew the show was going to be a hit. Yeah. Everyone talked about what a, a monster it was going to be. Right. Um, and he said, I'm not taking it. Wow. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I, I can't, I can't leave you. I said, it's three months. Go do the three months. I mean, I had host work. I had other yeah. stuff. Take the three month job. When you come back, we'll start the company. And I will never forget what Todd said. He said, I know something amazing is going to happen to you. And I'm going to be standing right next to you when it does. And I'm not leaving. And he gave the show to one of his really good friends, John Kierhofer, who still runs and now executive produces mm. and is the only one other than the host of that show who has been there from season one on. No way. John Kierhofer still runs all of the challenges and everything on that show. And Todd and I went on to start the company the next day on my front porch. And Endurance was the first show to come out of it? And we used our miles to get <laughs> airline tickets yeah. to fly to New York. To pitch? To pitch Discovery Kids in New York, yeah. even though it aired on NBC because right. they owned NBC. They owned that block. Set, yeah. Right. And we pitched it. And it was one of the only pitches I've ever been in when the buyer turns to the other person in the room and says, I can't wipe the smile off my face. Can you? <laughs> and I was like, wow. Is, it, is this the way it's always going to be? That is awesome. And, uh, and we pretty much sold that show in the room. Uh, and, and, you know, went on to do over 150 episodes. So you're in startup mode, and you're in startup mode now, currently in 2018. But at, at this point, what, what year is this? 2002, Eight, 2001? Oh, yeah, 2001. So you guys are like, okay, so we need, like, edit 
bays and we need someone to like oversee our budgets. And- I will tell you that I had a lot of entrepreneurial business uh, gut instinct. Right. And so I was like, here's what we're going to do. We're buying three Avids. Back then they were 60 grand a piece. Okay. Okay. So that's $180,000 investment. Okay. And, and this Todd, is, this is your money. You know, Todd turned to me. He said, I, I don't have, I don't have that. Right. Um, I used the money I, I had made for years hosting shows. Right. And he, um, he put whatever he could in at the time. Right. And, and, and we did it. And he really put his ass on the line, mm-hmm. um, put everything, all chips to the center of the table to make that happen. He walked away from an unbelievable opportunity. He put every dime he had and, you know, but, saved. But you knew you're going to get it back within the budgets of endurance as well. So like you, but you had sure. to float it out there to buy the equipment. Yes. Initially. And you have to get an office and you have to, all these right. things that were just sort of happening in real time. And who's and who's running your budgets? Did you and, just call in a friend? Yeah, you know your your beg, borrow, steal kind of mode. Right. And it's like, oh, I hosted a show where I really liked the guy who was the line producer. Right. Let me call him. Right. And you know, you go to your bank of knowledge. Right. And you remember guys that you enjoyed being around and women that you enjoyed being around, and you call those people because to me, again, family, feeling like a family was way bigger and way more important than the money, the ratings, the TV shows, that right. if you created a really great environment, success has to come out of that. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. That's 2002 when that show premieres for love or money is 2003. So th- for love or money is a fantastic story. Really? That really, that really puts you guys into the like, endurance the, the big, the big gave time. us that show. I don't know if you know that through the NBC relationship. So an executive at NBC called and said, uh, someone here really loves endurance and they would, we'd like to show the episodes to our boss, who was Jeff Gaspin. Okay. And I said, great, but I'm no dummy, right? This is not my first barbecue. I've been in the business since I was 10. So I send all of the episodes except the finale, hmm. thinking, well, if they watch, then they're going to call me and want that. And if they don't watch, Smart. then I'll know they don't watch. Smart. A week later, I get a call. Hey, you sent every tape, but the finale, where's right. the finale? I said, when you set up a meeting, I'll bring the finale with me. That's what you said to Gaspin? That's what I said to the person who called me. Okay. It wasn't Jeff who called. Okay. And they said, okay. And so I brought the finale in. And we started talking about like the shows I was producing and the trajectory of my career and where it was headed and what I wanted to do. And they said, you know, we're trying to develop this show. We haven't been able to come up with um, exactly what the format is. We're giving it out to three different companies to try. Oh, okay. Would you take some time and develop it for nothing? Absolutely. Right. I'm in the nothing business at that point, right? Like, I got nothing to lose. Right. I got, right? I mean, come on, let's you do got, it. You got three avids to pay for. Yes, right. let's go. Right. And it was a title called Around the World in 80 Dates. Uh huh. And I went back. Which is still on your IMDb. It's and a, yes. Yes. And uh, Todd and I sat in a room. And we cut out little pieces of paper and wrote W for women on those. And we wrote M for men on the others. And we had one piece of paper we put into a shape of an airplane. And we sat on this table. And in a couple hours, he and I banged out a format together that we didn't like. We loved. We thought we were geniuses. Like this was the smartest format ever. Now we just got off doing endurance, which was two nickels yeah. to make that show. This right. was prime time. Big. I never even thought we, we'd have a business plan for our company. Right. I never thought prime was for us. I right. thought we were the second wave. Right, right, right. First wave was for the people who really knew what they were doing. Right. So we walk in a week later, 
and we have our little cutouts that we made to come up with the show. And on the, I'll never forget the glass table in the conference room at NBC. Yep. Gaspin's there. All the, you know, other. Development people are there, and I start moving the the pieces around of men and women and the airplane and the pitch, and and one person in the room stands up and says, "I think he can do it," <laughs> and that was Jamela Hunter, uh, and Jamela, who's the best t- to this day, I give her all of the credit for being the only one at the at that time who stood up in a room and said, I think the guy can do it. And if it wasn't for Jamella, we would never have been in prime time. Right. For sure. Nothing else comes after that maybe in in prime time. No way. She yeah. she really saw the sparkle in my eyes. It always takes that first one. Yep. And she saw that I was going to deliver. Mm. I, I don't know how to fail. And she saw it and she read it. And, mm. and I give her all the credit for that. So – we got it. The big companies didn't get it. They gave it to us. It was like it was unbelievable, right? So in that moment, we're putting together uh, around the world in, in 80 dates, um, 9-11 hits. Mm. And uh, in the wake of 9-11, nobody wanted to see an airplane with an American flag going country to country full of Americans on it. Mm. And in that network moment, mm. they canceled the show. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time they canceled it, I had the airplane. We had scouted the world. And when I mean the world, we literally took 30 people on a scout around the world in every country. We had cast Cast the show, The Bachelor, The Bachelor. We had cast everybody. Oh, wait a second. Oh, oh, it's coming. Oh, I think I I I see where this might be going. I think it was on a Friday, they canceled the show. Yeah. On Monday... I had come up with a show idea over the weekend thinking, we have The Bachelor. Right, to utilize we, everything. Right. Yes, why would you waste all these assets? Incredible. We were a couple million dollars in right. to production. And it's their money. Right, and to me, I'm thinking, I, I would never let that money go to waste. Right. I said, right now, we are a house away from having a TV show. Right. And I pitched for Love or Money. And did you already have that format, or is that something you had to come up with over the weekend? I came up with it over the weekend. Out of, out of necessity, you had to come up with another idea. And yes. you and Todd? Yes. Bang that out? Yes. Where were you when you banged that out? I don't even remember you where you we were. were. I don't, that one I don't even remember. It seemed like you had vivid memories and, of where you were when well, these ideas happened. The other ones I did, yeah. yeah right. And this one, I, what I do remember is calling Jeff Gaspin and pitching him over the phone, the one-liner. And the one-liner simple, which is a guy comes on the show. There's 15 girls. The guy doesn't know it, but the girls are playing for a million dollars. So the girl he picks in the end is going to win a million dollars. And, and the pitch is, hey, somewhere along the way, one of these girls is going to start feeling bad mm-hmm. about kind of, in quotations, whoring herself out for a million dollars for a guy she doesn't care about. And one of the girls is actually going to be in love. And some people are going to be there for love for, or, or for the, the oldest question in the book. And, it was right? there, and was there a decision point at the end when you won? Like, or, or was, so or the was, decision or was, point in the end that no one knew about, which yeah. was the true kicker in the end, right. was you can't have both. Right. So if in the end he picks you, you have to decide between love or money. Now, I know now yeah. that seems foolish. Of course, you've been on six dates with the guy. You're going to take the yeah, money. Yeah. But back then, the purity of the genre and the purity of the audience, the audience hadn't matured yet no, not at either. All. Oh, we were at 1.0 stage of reality television. Definitely. And we had all sorts of crazy titles, and it was Jeff Gaspin's genius. Great title. Leaned over the table, and he's like, well, you're asking him to pick between love or money. That's the title of the show. And we were like, oh, that's why he's at that big desk. <laughs> that was that was smart. And is that 
Okay, so is that what then led to you guys doing physical production on Loser? So that because you had that first NBC for Love or Money was a huge, huge hit. deal, huge. It was the number one show of the summer. Twenty-seven million people watched the finale, and that money is rolling in. Now it for was you guys. now we've got two hits on the air, right? And we are high fiving each other. Like, right. I mean, it it wasn't that long ago we were on my front porch. Well, I'm saying because that, that premieres in 2003. You cut to 2004, 2005. And now all of a sudden, this little three-ball company that yep. you just started, based on an idea on a napkin, not too much earlier, Biggest Loser comes out in 2004, Beauty and the Keek in 2005, Breaking Bonaducci in 2005, and Going Hollywood. All that with after, endurance with on with endurance the air. and for love or money, and for love or money going into season three, season four, riding high. Yep. So you've got all those shows running through. Now you've yep. got offices in Manhattan Beach, yep. which I remember well. The dream, the dream, right? Because yeah. you're a beach guy. Yep. I take it right. You're a South oh, Bay plus guy. Plus, I could leave. And coach my kids' basketball game and then come back. That's I could go home, have dinner with the kids, go completely offline, right. you know, from 6 to 9 p.m. As soon as it goes dark and they go to sleep. I mean, back then, we didn't have the technology we have where you could be watching cuts in your bed. Right. Then I'd go back to the office and watch cuts. I think about that. You could totally escape it. So I was three miles away, so it was just a back and forth. So it enabled me to do my best work right. um, and creatively uh, and still really control my family life. A lot of people don't know this. I told the network um, around the days of Biggest Loser and uh, Beauty and the Geek, we don't shoot on weekends. And they were Mm -hmm. like, what do you mean you don't shoot on weekends? I said, listen, I have two young kids, a wife I love, and uh, I desperately need that time with my family, and so does everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, having the foresight to know that other people need to refuel as well. You know, the business is so grind you out, seven-day-a-week kind of thing. And, of course, both networks are what do you mean? Well, what happens on the weekends when you're not shooting? I'm like, nothing. Right. Because when the cameras go on, that's when the good stuff happens. And in fact, it helped the shows. Because when the cameras were turned off, these people did some bonding privately that would then play out on camera. Right. So it actually, in turn, ended up working for us. Right. And that goes back to culture. Culture of company. In the end, life is very simple if you reduce all the noise. You have your family and you have your work, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I made those two things the biggest priorities in my life. They were the only things I focused on. And that's why I think I've, I've been married for 25 years, <laughs> and I had a successful business because yeah. it was all I had. I don't drink. I don't go out. I, I you had, don't drink. I didn't know that. Nope. I, in fact, in, in Never? The, no. Well, very rarely. I mean, everyone will tell you. I've. I very rarely drink. Okay. okay. And, uh, and by drink, it would be uh, share a glass of wine with my wife. Sure. Um, the only time in, my, in Hollywood, the only time I have ever gone to drinks, in quotations, because I never go, was when we were creating uh, Biggest Loser. Okay. And uh, someone from Reveille asked me out for drinks. His name is Mark Hoops. You're gonna run with if you're gonna run and, with the Reveille crew back in the day. You yeah, were go, like, you were gonna go out to drink. Yeah, I was like, I don't. How about pancakes? Like, why do we have to? You know, again, I'm Jewish. No. I'd rather eat than no. drink. This is Reveille. No. And it was a disaster. <laughs> uh, I, I went. Did you actually drink drink? I know. I went for drinks. Oh. And I even remember where it was. It was in Venice. And it was uh, what's that sushi place on uh, Main Street there? Um, I don't know. Oh. Coops talked me into going, and it was the first time I'd ever been to drinks in Hollywood and the last. And a woman was walking by a waitress with five glasses of red wine in her hand on a, on a tray, and the table in front of us, someone laughed, threw their hand up, and all five glasses in slow motion went in the air. Mark will tell you this. Went in the air, and it was like a TV moment where I froze, and then in slow motion, I watched all five glasses crash on top of me. Glass, red wine, not a drop on Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm there five minutes. Yep. I go to the bathroom. 
I'm covered in what looks like blood There's everywhere. There's no cleaning any of that. No. From, from my head to into my shoes. Right. And I, I, I said, good night. I got to go. That was it. And I never, I never had drinks or dinner in Hollywood again. Ever again. Yeah. So Loser came through what? Well, who, when did the first call get So made? Jeff Gaspin called he and said, call. there's something in the weight loss space. We don't know what it is. Um, but, but we bought it. But we bought it. That's how you sold things back then, by the way. That's, that's right. Like how, how – I mean I'm going to get to this later, but I, I'm, I always love asking people that were selling shows at that time, what were, what were the actual materials – that were brought into the room yeah. for the pitch that sold that idea. Because as I understand it from lore, and I know it's been told in many ways, but I feel like Biggest Loser was like pitched to Jeff Gassman at like a Super Bowl party or something. Like the log line. Like That's just right. like the one-liner. And it was either Ben or a combination of Ben and Dave Broom well, yeah, that tag-teamed Gassman at the Super Bowl party that right. sold it. And, and the way it worked was like Ben was the distributor. Right. You know, Dave had this great relationship with Jeff and also had 24-hour fitness. Right. And then 3-Ball was brought in to do physical production and create the format because no one had a format. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Todd and I, once again, at this point, we had an office. We sat in the office, and we just started batting ideas around. And and the the real idea was, you know, to make these people into Olympic heroes. Right. That was not the idea at that point at the network to do that. In fact, the executives under Jeff at the time – wanted to kind of find the comedy Mm. in overweight people. Mm. And I begged them to give us an opportunity to actually locate the pain Mm. and find out where it was because I knew nobody could eat themselves to 400 pounds because they were that hungry. What they perceived as hunger pain was emotional pain. And I knew that you know, because I knew a lot of people that were overweight, and I could see the pain. And so I wanted to kind of find that. And redistribute that energy versus trying to kind of poke fun. And it was, it was a balancing act uh, in the beginning until they allowed me to kind of do what we did, right. which was turn these people into kind of heroes. So the show's a monster. Yeah, but it, no one thought it was going to be a monster. In fact, most people at NBC were like with the shades drawn and a, and a bottle of gin the night before. I don't know if you know, but uh, Entertainment Tonight invited – one of the producers on the show, which ended up being me, probably because it was such a passion of mine, the yeah. show. So I went on two 300-pound women talk, talking about it with anger in my face right next to me. You agreed how, to this. How could, yeah. How could I do this? That these, these are the last people on earth that should be made fun of. Meanwhile, they had never seen an episode no, of the show. It hasn't come out yet. Right. right. So all they saw was the commercials. And they said, and we want an answer now. Why would you be doing this to, to these overweight people? And the camera cuts to you on an extreme close-up. You know the deal. Yeah. Right. And the red light's on. And I said, well, I'm looking for people who are overweight and unhappy. Mm. Right, so if you're talking about well, there's a lot of overweight people that are happy. Why would you, you know, uh, sure. be mean to them? So I'm looking for people who are unhappy, and there's millions of them. Right. I want to help those people. It's so simple. Conversation over. It's so simple. And again, when you reduce things to these easy questions, those are the best TV shows. How can you take someone that's unhappy, find the reason, and help them be the cure? Not the easy way out, staple, suck, cut, surgery. Not not the the hard way. Do it yourself. And you give someone the tools to do something, and they actually do it. That's a great story to tell. And in, in any that that's the Rudy, you know what I mean? That we're always rooting for right. in any movie. You're always looking for the underdog. These people are the underdog. So Ben Silverman, who I start working for at this point, goes to NBC. He's running the network, and he doubles up, doubles down. I think he quadrupled down. Quadrupled down. So how many episodes did it go from? To from what to what when Ben got there? So I think at the time we were around eighteen hours 
Okay, a season. For a season. Okay. One season a year, and we waited for the next 18 hours to be ordered. Right. Ben walked in and picked up 65 hours of the show. <laughs> 65 hours. Now, remember, you get paid per episode. So it doubles the episode count and turns no, it from it, one hour to two hours? It, triples triples the hours so the think hours. about a 65 hours but he expanded it from a one-hour format to a two-hour format too right he did we had done a couple episodes that were two hours including some finales that right. worked and, and 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 there was a show behind us that that failed so that a couple episodes the access to extend it you know and when you're producing yeah. and someone calls you on a friday and says hey you know your share your show airs on tuesday can you make it two hours the answer is always yes and there's a writer's strike that happens around this time yep. So this is when Apprentice gets brought back, and that's made into Celebrity Apprentice, and that goes two hours. So they're trying to fill fill the schedule as much as they can. I mean, you do know, like, people thought not only that Ben was crazy, but he was feeding from his left pocket to his right pocket, and then it worked. <laughs> right. Like, it worked, I mean, to the tune of ratings that were gigantic, enormous. Do you the remember, show took off. Do you remember the gift you sent Ben when it was announced that he was the chairman of NBC? Because I do. I, I don't. You really do? I do. I really remember this. Because it was like my first week uh, or week and a half working for him. He got he got the job. I started for Ben on a the Monday. The amount of gifts that he must have gotten. Oh, dude. The phone calls were off. It was crazy. It's like in the movies where just phones are ringing off the hook like in right. an old 1970s right. newsroom. Um, I, I started for Ben on a Monday. He was made chairman of NBC that Friday. So I'm just like shadowing the, oh, the current assistant. Gosh. I hardly even know Ben Silverman. And my brother calls me that night and he's like, I'm pretty sure your boss is the new chairman of NBC. There's this woman, Nikki Fink, <laughs> who has a website called Deadline Hollywood, and she's pretty accurate about this stuff. So I'm like, uh, what? And it's like a three-day weekend. It was like Memorial Day weekend. I come in um, that Tuesday and the phone rings and it's Ben. And he's like, do you have any idea what you just signed up for? And I said, no, what's going on? And all Ben ever said was, welcome to the big time, baby. Let's roll some calls. Oh. That was it. So it's the news is out there, gifts are coming in, and there's this big giant box that gets sent in, and Ben opens it, and it was waiters. You sent him like fly fishing waiters oh my God, I remember this that now. you wear, like when you go fly and you stand in a river. And the card was something to the effect of you're going to need these for all the bullshit <laughs> you're going to be waiting. You're going to be waiting through in the job. And, and I remember it vividly because oh it was the most unique. You have a great memory. It was the most unique gift that was sent to the office. That's really funny. And it happened to come from a guy that I was just working as a PA for. That's like, really funny. A year earlier. Um, you got, I mean, you really stepped in it, man. You got the Hollywood experience. I came off. I was a year removed from having done stunts. I mean, you're, you're, you're PAing. And yeah. a year later, you're in the chairman's well, was, office at NBC. Well, I, I, I was, maybe was, my math's a little wrong. I was PAing, and then I went and did stunt work right. on Friday Night Lights and Gridiron Gang, this movie with The Rock, two football things. Then I lied on my resume, started at CAA. I spent 10 months, 11 months at CAA, and got the job working for Bennett Reveille. So I was like a, little, like a year and a half removed from having been a PA, and I was like a, you know, a year removed from having done stunts with hardly any real assistant experience. I had 10 months at CAA to my name. And now all of a sudden I was working for the chairman of NBC, which was like, I remember you hustling. I do remember, which was my childhood, which was my childhood network. Like if there was any network I wanted to work at, it would have been NBC. Honestly, I wanted to stay at Reveille. Like part of me was actually hoping Ben was going to be like, no, no, no. I know you came here to work at Reveille. Stay at Reveille. Cause I always wanted to be on the producing and selling side, right. but I remembered that gift vividly. So That's I'm going gonna, gonna to jump ahead. Cause we're, we're deep into this. You guys blow up, you know, like, like three ball, you're now having people come after you. People want to purchase you. I had Ryan out on the show. 
why Rhinow? Why iWorks? What was it like now going through that sales process for you and Todd as partners? Well, the company wasn't for sale. Right. That's the interesting It never is until someone comes calling. Yeah, and so what happened is a rental car pulled up. We were shooting Endurance. Um, Still? Yeah. How many seasons did that thing go for? Oh, it went seven seasons. Oh, my God. I didn't realize So let's say it's 2007. Okay. And we're shooting Endurance. A rental car pulls up. uh, Yeah, we're in like the – was it the Adirondacks? And um, way in the mountains, and a teeny tiny rental car pulls up, and three Dutch guys get out of this car, like like a clown car. You know, they're all like nine feet tall, right? You know, because that's that's what it is. Right out is a tall drink of water. That man. Oh yeah, and he, he's he's like the like Scandinavian David Hasselhoff. Yes, and he wasn't the tallest guy who got out of the car. <laughs> really? Yeah. So three guys get out of the car, and um and they say we are here to buy your company, and I was like, uh, it's not for sale. <laughs> And they, and, they, and they wrote a number down on a piece of paper, and I said, come on in. And I was in a, I was in a rental house that I was staying in with, okay. you know, with my family, and I had young kids, and Todd had a rental house. And they came in, and we spent the entire weekend with them talking about what the, the view is. You know, the fact that this guy from this small country who was kind of the Ryan Seacrest of his country right. um, had so much success and was buying production companies, but that he really needed a crown jewel. Mm. And that crown jewel is obviously America. Mm. So that he could take formats from the other countries that he had bought and then push those formats to the U.S. and vice versa. A lot of the countries that he owned production companies in were already producing shows that I was making and created oh, in the U.S. Okay, got it. So, so I think it, were, it for, was a straight line for They were your for format him. partners out Yeah, there. Okay. and it was like, here's a great way to control quality yeah. and make sure that the Bible of how to make these shows and the passion that goes behind it gets transferred to these other languages and, and helped along the way. Right. And, of course, owning 100% of something worldwide right. and controlling that format worldwide was the holy grail of TV. So how quickly did this come together? Oh, over a weekend. Over a weekend? Yeah. Wait, you just met the guy? I literally just met the guy, like, let's say on a Friday, and by Monday we were making a deal. Nobody – who's your agent at this point? So, uh, well, I, yeah, you know the story of Itkin. Itkin rep starts representing me right. um, very early on. I called and asked to leave a message for Mark Itkin, and they said no. The assistant said no. And I was like, well, what do you mean? No, I just want to leave a message. They said um, – uh, no, I can't allow you to leave a message if you want to reach Mark. Here's his email, which back then like, it, yeah. email was still f- not like it is today where right. it's in everyone's pocket. I sent him an email and I said, I know you don't know who I am, but I hosted a show called Funhouse. And um, I know you don't represent uh, ideas. You represent companies. I don't really have one yet, <laughs> but I have an idea. Make a long story longer. Yeah. 30 minutes later, Mark Aitken called me. No way. And he said, um, I, of course, I know who you are and I would love to meet with you. And I went in, and I pitched him the idea, and again, pitch with passion. I don't, I don't even know if he heard the idea, right. but he saw the look on my face. He saw the enthusiasm. He saw how bad I wanted it. And he signed you as a producer. And he said, I'll tell you what, not only am I going to take this idea out um, through you know, William Morris, I'm actually going to go to the pitches with you. Nice. And the first pitch was to Mike Darnell. What which was is that? the first time I ever met Mike Darnell. Wow. And, uh, and then he started representing me. And the company started to take off. He introduced me to a guy who he said I was going to love who to be my agent. I said, no, no, you're my agent. Right. He's like, no, 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 trust me. You're going to love the guy. I'm like, I'm not going to love the guy. I love you. He's like, nope, it's got to be this guy. And in the door walks Han Schiff. Han Schiff. Who was my college roommate. What? Yeah. I did not know that. And Han Schiff has represented me the bulk of my entire you, career you since. Didn't, wait, you didn't know Hans was working there? I knew he was in the U.K., 
With Ben. With Ben, yeah. And I didn't know he had come back. That's amazing. So he's in the UK. We don't really communicate because it's another country away, and that's the way the world works. I did not know you guys were roommates. And we were college roommates back before there were apps to get caught. We were just roommates. Here, Hi, what's your name? What's your name? Oh, I'm JD. I'm Hans. And every California first I have. I mean, literally stupid stuff, like the first avocado I ever ate, the first sushi, the first time I was on Sunset, the first time I was in Beverly Hills. Every California first was with Hans Schiff. Where did you grow up? Back east. Back east, okay. Yeah. All right, well, the reason I asked about the agent is because this this guy just pulls up in a rental car and puts a check in front of you, and I would think Mark Aitken or whoever's repping you at that point would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa slow down. They did. J.D. and Todd. They did. We got to shop this now. Uh, like, yeah. we, we have to give other studios or people the chance to bid on you. I was very much – I was in the reaction phase of bonding with Reinout. He was a host. I was a host. Right. Yes, yes. You know, we both started out as talent. We both understood the entrepreneurial spirit. Mm. We both started companies on our own. Like, there were so many sim- – we drove the same car. Like, there was just so many similarities, okay, so- you know, to our lifestyles that I, 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 I got caught up in it. And Itkin, to his credit – because there have been other times people have offered us money and okay. deals. And, and Mark always gave me great advice. And the great advice was, is it life-changing? It's very simple advice. If it's not going to change your life, bet on yourself. Hmm. And until it's going to change your life, and in a real meaningful way, then it's not worth it. Hmm. And, and also, never sell the entire company on on at the beginning right always bet on yourself right that's mark's theme i think all along was how talented do you think you are and have you reached your peak if you haven't don't sell everything right and we didn't and and to his credit it was his advice um to to sell half the company and sort of let the other half ride and our company tripled in size over the next three years you were talking off air about when they bought it when they bought 50 percent of three ball you told them, just so you know, our order with Biggest Loser is a monstrous order. Back then, it, back then when, they, when they bought it, yeah. it wasn't the 65 episodes, but it was creeping up that way. Okay. But, I, but right before the other half, yeah. when we sold the other half, I said, hey, listen, 65 hours of network primetime real estate is impossible to replace. It, you were saying earlier, it's Can't like the equivalent of eight series because most series are eight episodes. Right. And eight primetime series <laughs> right. makes you Dick Wolf. Right. Right. I mean, it's unheard of and unscripted. Right. It does not happen. It will never happen. Right. And so in that scenario, I was like, this business can't be replaced. And then you, we really need to think about that and then start coming up with other franchise formats. Right. Which, you know, they're not, they're not they don't just arrive. Right. They're hard to come by. Yes. Especially as the business started to grow and you have way more people now playing in the sandbox. Right. For sure. But I had Brent Montgomery on the show, and uh, Brent, Brent, you know, he's he's doing well for himself, and uh, <laughs> he, he sold his company to ITV. And I asked him a question that I, I want to ask you: When the moment finally came, like I remember that great scene in Jerry Maguire where they're waiting by the fax machine for Rod Tidwell's contract to yep. come through. When the zeros finally hit your bank account, how did you celebrate with your wife? Or your so, family or your friend. Like, how did you celebrate that night? Yeah, I, um, it's interesting. The, the most vivid memory, honestly, was being at a table at a law firm that had 40 chairs at the table. <laughs> and on one side was a mountain of paper, seemingly three feet high, that needed signatures. Um, and on the other side sat a phone. And I had been very close to my banker for a, a lot of years, a guy named Steve Shapiro at City National Bank, who's been there forever and is like one of the true gentlemen, okay. you know what I mean, in, okay. in that banking world. Yeah. And um, you sign your name. The first signature you sign, the phone rings, and it's Steve. And I pick it up, and he's got a great sense of humor, and he just said, 
the eagle has landed. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent me an email yeah. with the balance, like like Brent says, with the balance. It just immediately been wired. And it immediately is wired on the, on the first signature. And I remember looking at the sheet of paper of or the or the email yeah. of the amount and thinking like it's it almost doesn't seem real it's like that it, it's it's right out of a movie you know the the guy on the other side of the table who made the deal a guy named Mark Lazar who's probably one of the smartest business guys i ever met mm. he's an american guy who uh ran the M&A side of iWorks at the time okay and had lived in Amsterdam for many years with them um he was just he was so kind about the whole thing, and he wanted to enjoy my moment as much as I wanted to. And I and, and Todd and I looked at each other, and almost in a way, that was like one of the warmest moments. We're like brothers. That was like one of the warmest moments we ever had together because it wasn't that many years ago that we would ride our bikes on the Strand in Manhattan Beach yeah. and look at the houses and think, man, one day we're going to own one of those places. And we would laugh, and then we'd create the next show on our bike as we'd ride, or right. we'd go down surfing, or we'd you know, walk the beach or whatever, and, and we'd get to work. And we laughed, and here was a moment we looked at each other and we thought, oh my gosh, we can actually go get one of those places. Was it that much more enjoyable because you had a partner in crime the whole time than you think it would have been had you done it all by yourself? Uh, Absolutely. I, first yeah. of all, it would not have happened without Todd. Yeah. For sure. And Todd was on the cleanup crew, started on the cleanup crew at Funhouse. Wow. And he was on the floor and I was hosting the show. And he went from that to creating challenges, yeah. to producing challenges, to being the producer of the department and moving his way up. And we created a friendship back in the 80s and early 90s. We'd go on the road together and do live events all around the world. We didn't realize at the time we were perfecting this communication and this dialogue. What do you do? What do I do? There's those moments that you have over those years that we can look back on and identify what we were really working on that how we, you, we how, didn't even know. How you balanced each other. Yeah, we had no idea. It, Todd, in the moments that were the darkest, you, you, you produce shows. You know there's some dark moments, man. Oh, yeah. You know, there's some moments you're like, what did I get myself into? Every single time I turned to my left or my right, Todd was on one side. Mm. Every single time. He was always there. He was always ready to do whatever it took. And if that meant taking a 12-pack to a, a hotel room for some crew guys who were unhappy mm. and sitting there until they drank the whole 12-pack laughing, then Todd, that's what Todd would do. If it meant going to a beach in Hawaii to get endurance set up and the beach falls out at the last minute and he needs to find another beach within 24 hours, that's what he would do. Right. Whatever it took. And, and he knew what I did. Right. You know, I was like the business guy. I was the pitch guy. I was the front man. I was the voice of the company. Uh, we, we had this unspoken communication in that moment when you sign your name and all of that work, that, that 20 years that he and I spent together becomes real in that moment, yeah. whatever you identify success as. Um, it's, a, it's a very emotional moment. You know, but I can't say that for either one of us, that much of the priorities in our life actually changed. Right. Right. It's still kind of about simple stuff. Like I still watch the sun go down over the ocean. I just don't have to drive there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I still like to eat. That was such a boss line right there. But I mean I, I still like so to good. eat outside. Right. I just eat outside <laughs> on, the, on the ocean on my watching the sun go down. Like not – you know in the end the, the things you still had as priorities or important things in your life – still were important, mm. and I try to teach my kids because they're growing up in a, in a way that's not normal, right. is that, listen, if things make you happy, you're screwed because things can always be taken away. 
but experiences, environments, simple things, going for a walk, making somebody laugh. Mm. Those things can never be taken away from you. Find pleasure in those things, and you'll always be successful. I always think that if you love garbage, and you you can figure out a way to be a millionaire collecting garbage. Mm. You absolutely can. Mm. The money always follows passion. Whatever you, I had a passion for this type of storytelling. For whatever it is, I didn't even know there was a beast inside of me that cared that much about weight loss. There was. Right. I discovered it. And along the way, those discoveries, it was never a goal to become a gazillionaire. It was never a goal to have a giant company with hundreds and hundreds of employees and thousands worldwide. It was never the goal. Mm. The goal was like for Todd and I to hang out <laughs> and make shows together, have fun. Make shows you like. And right. change people's lives. And be transformative. That was it. There was no no other plan. You are such a positive guy, right? You always you like see, you. You I, I mean you know eh, ish. And you look younger ish. I mean I you know you're really a glass half full guy, right? I for sure. I am always thinking about what will go wrong eventually, and I, I and I probably Adam's like that. I, Adam is very much like that. <laughs> yeah, we were cut from the same cloth, right? But I want to hear from you, honestly now. Okay, hit me with the real. Okay, this is 2018. You have a startup now, Good Story Entertainment. You're partnered with Adam Greener and Scooter Braun in this company. I want you to explain that in a second. But you've now been through it from the dawn of when this business started, the reality business, to now. Is it easier or harder to sell a show now? It's definitely harder. It Even is, Even though you'd right? say, oh, well, there's more buyers. Oh, they're buying more shows. It's got to be easier. It's not. Um, and then I think complicating that. As the genre matured, the audience matured. Yeah. So now the shows have to be different on top of that. And so you, you have to stay nimble. At the end of Three Ball, the company was so big, I felt like I had a, a sort of a finger in all and a hand in none. Mm-hmm. And now starting this new gig after taking three and a half years of kind of in quotes retirement, um, starting this with, with Adam. And honestly, I never thought I was coming back to TV. Mm. I was I really enjoyed being retired. Like I had a great time. I spent every day with my kids. My wife and I would go out to lunch. We travel together. You had we, a book. We I wrote a book. We yeah. left for the summers. You know, I, yeah. I and went away. Like it it was an it was amazing. You can't get it out of your system like, though. But the thing is my wife would turn to me and she'd say everywhere we go you'd find someone who's who would look sad or was overweight and you'd go over and you'd talk to them. You'd try to convince them to change your life. You're doing it one person at a time. You need to get back to doing it on on the mm. scale that you were doing it. Like there's too much transformative vibe in you to save it for the one person that we run into at a meal mm. or you know what I mean or you're walking and you just want to help somebody or you know someone right. that you need to get back into it and it, I I got to give the credit really to Adam Greener. Right. Well which, Adam Adam my compadre we shared a wall at all three oh, no not, not that long when he was running Maverick I was yeah. on the other side of the wall at at my shop and we got very close over there and Adam left all three and I was like what are you going to do what's going on he's like ah, I got something in the works but I, I can't quite tell you and then I read the press release one day and I'm like yep you son of a bitch. Well, he and I have always been close. He's right. sort of Uncle Adam to my kids. Yeah. You know, from Passover dinners to, I mean, you you name it, year-end dinners. Right. And we were always very close to Three Ball. He was there 12 years. Right. And um, became kind of part of my family. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, when and then he goes off on his own ride. I, I left. Then he left to he go launched, to Maverick. He launches Chris Lino's Best on USA, which is yep. one of the biggest docuseries of the last few years. Right? I even have a picture of him on the first day at Maverick with a desk with nothing on it. A white sheet of paper in one hand and a pen in the other, and he took a picture and sent. I'm pretty sure he only sent it to me and said, "Here we go." Yep. And I, I so admired uh, like the enthusiasm and the energy, not not the fear, not the anxiety, but the fact it was like, "Yep, I'm leaning into this and I'm going to do it." And he took that company from zero 
to tens of millions of dollars in revenue right. with uh, Chris Lee Knows Best and a few other shows on VH1. That's right. And, um, you know, he, he loves what he does. Yeah. And, and in the end, that, that artistic part of him, right? I mean, you know he's an artist. He's an actual he, artist. Yeah. Like a legit artist. Like yes. Like paintings and whatnot, right? Yeah, like. Like, is it paintings or is it? No, it's it, it's it's a the art that he does is taking memories from his childhood. That's right. Little notes that were written or postcards and turning them into like five feet by three feet pieces right. of art. Yeah, and they're amazing. And and people have visceral reactions when they walk by his art. They're laughing and it reminds them of memories. It's the most interactive art that I've seen in a long time. It's in like fact, I just commissioned a piece. Oh, did you? Yeah. For your office? Yeah, because I'm just, well, for my house nice. um, that I've been thinking about for years and, and he's uh, he's finally going to do it. Adam's actually going to do it for you? He is, yeah. Did he bone you on the negotiation? Oh, absolutely. He's charging, you know, Adam, <laughs> it's full price. I mean. But what you're saying, but what you're saying is that it is harder now. What I find, only having done this for a handful of years now out on my own, is that it's all about packaging now. Whereas back in the day, it was kind of a meritocracy where if it was a good idea, the idea sold. And even Arthur Smith says that good ideas don't sell. Great ideas only have a small chance of selling, right? That's what I really took away from my, my last episode with him. It's all about packaging these days. And what's so brilliant about what you and Adam are doing now is you've aligned yourself with a guy who is constantly day in and day out working with some of the biggest names in the world in the music scene and, and beyond. So you've now got baked into the DNA of your startup company here at Good Story Entertainment a connection to all types of talent that you can partner with or not partner with and kind of pick and choose when an idea feels right and organic. Am I doing a good job of stating yeah, yeah. I mean, you, what you, it strategically you, sets you guys apart? You nailed it. And, and really it came out of a, an end-of-the-year dinner. Adam and I always comes over to my house between Christmas and New Year's. We have a big dinner. We sit and we talk. And it's the one time a year I might actually have a glass of wine. Then we talk and, and we started talking about like what we could do together. Mm. And, and is it time for me to come back? And would it make sense? And I, I was honest with him. I said, you know, just to hang the Adam and JD shingle – isn't going to do it. Like, it's just not enough. Mm. I think it's too hard in this environment that's incredible, to get started. Though. But that's incredible, though, for you to have that opinion of yourself that you, after everything you've done, wouldn't be enough in this day and age in 2018 yep. to sell a show. That even you thought, we got to further package this company up to make it undeniable. For sure. And that talks about the state of the business, J.D. I mean, like, you're yeah. one of the founding guys of this industry, and even you thinking, I need to team up really is, is kind of a startling Well, thought. also the business part of you says, how can I leap a business plan forward half a decade right, no, yes. from, from starting? Is there a way to do that? That's a great point. And, and I, I wasn't strategically looking for anything. Um, there was a guy at Scooter. I've known Scooter since before the Beeper days okay. when Scooter was just an unbelievable hustler, which he still is. Yeah. And he'd come around with ideas, and, and it was infectious. His enthusiasm reminded me a lot of my enthusiasm. Yeah. So I couldn't get enough of being around the guy because he just he had a fire in his belly. You know, and you, yeah. you knew something great was going to happen to him. Um, so I, I'd known him, and then his right-hand guy, a guy named uh, Scott Manson, mm. reached out to me. And they wanted to talk about maybe executive producing a show for them. Or, and I, I went I, – I, honestly, I, I wasn't going to take the meeting. If it wasn't for the fact that I knew Scooter, I probably wouldn't have taken the meeting. And I came in, and I said, you know, I, I don't really want to just executive produce a show. It's not really what I do. But there's more IP that falls out of Scooter's pocket on the way to the bathroom. <laughs> That he doesn't even have time to lean down to pick up. That is not your first time to use that line. Yeah, no. That is, that, yeah, that's, that's a good one. But it's true. That's, it's great. It's and great. I, he's so busy filling arenas around the world yeah, and yeah, traveling yeah. And, right, and trying to keep the – I know what it's like when you have the talent that big, yeah. right, managing that. Right. That maybe there's an opportunity to launch an unscripted studio 
You know, maybe that, that's, that's a bigger picture for me because, as you said perfectly, you cannot go without a package show right now. You walk in with a, a show with Ariana, which we sold, a show with Justin, which we sold, or a show with Scooter yeah. and some, some, an idea, it's going to sell. Yeah. And to me, it, I, I, I love making shows, and so I don't want to just start and be developing for several years. I want to get right back in um, to production. I want to get right back into rooms pitching, and it made the most sense if we could partner and create the studio together and it allowed Adam and I to do it. But I will be honest, it was very hard for me not to have Todd. Oh, like, sure. Right after 20 plus, I mean, yeah. 25 years, he was my work wife. Yeah. You know, we did, we traveled over a million miles around the world together. A million. Mm. There, we, We've been through a lot of stuff. And uh, I, I, so it was very difficult for me to do that. And I called Todd. And I and I I told him, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Yeah. I want to make sure you're cool with it. Yeah. And again, the reason why you know he's family is he he could not have been happier. Yeah. For me and the idea of what we were about to do, and Scooter could not have been more supportive in setting this thing up to be like, hey, you're an adult. You've done this before. I don't know this area. I, I know my area. What do you need from me? Mm. And he's just let me completely do my thing, and he's let Adam completely do his thing, and together. I'm back to having a hand in everything instead of a finger in all. Right. And it feels so good to do the deep dive on creative and come up with ideas and activate them in a way that I did back in the day. It's kind of got my juices flowing again. And I think I need I – th- I don't think people respect the sabbatical enough. Mm. I really thought I was retiring. I never thought I would come back. Um, but when it was time for me to come back, I was so filled up emotionally from having key years in my kid's life and key years with my wife and key years to be alone for the first time in my adult life. When I walked away from three ball, mm. a week later, I was on a golf course, never played golf before in my life. By myself with, and I'm not exaggerating, with a Milky Way and a glass of ice water and a golf cart and golf clubs. It's the greatest thing in the world, by the way. I spent four hours by myself for the first time in my adult life, and I just couldn't believe how incredible it was. Did you like it? I loved it. Golfing by myself is one of my favorite favorite joys. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And I did it for three years, a couple times a week, by yeah. myself. And all the guys at the club, well, why don't you play with us? Why nope, I'm good. It's great. You put in yeah. your, you put in your, your, your I would listen AirPods. to Howard Stern. Yeah. It's the best thing in the world. It's the best. And I really learned a lot about myself, which has enabled me, sadly, I'm, uh, you know, a past 50 years old, I really started learning more about who I was and it enabled me, you know, in building a business and a family and all those things. It enabled me for a little bit of me time. And, and once I gave back to myself, starting this company with Adam and with Scooters allowed me to kind of bring everything I have to it. Well, what's uh, on a business level, what's also genius is that the company is funded by uh, a fund, right? The Scooter is already a part of, right? Yep. Which means you don't have any ties to any studios, traditional studios, as of now, you can partner with anybody. You can go to any network. You haven't taken money from any entertainment companies, right? Uh, which means in a few years, in two years, in five years, they will then be calling you, and you're probably going to have some other tall individuals getting out of a car <laughs> and, and wanting to put a check in front of you guys. So the whole thing makes so much sense right now. This and, moment truly is, I, is for Adam. And I say that because he did great things at my company, mm. great things, and we reaped a lot of the rewards. He did great things for Maverick, and they reaped most of the rewards. Yeah. And this is his moment. That's this awesome. is his moment to have ownership in something and to really go for it. And it's my moment to kind of 
as a, as a coach instead of just a player. Look at the, the players on the team and position everyone the right way and give our all and have them look to me um, for that work ethic and for the hunger and for the passion and then kind of do it again. But I'm not so much looking for that transaction at the end of it as I'm looking for kind of the camaraderie and the partnership with Scooter, which is great, and the support system. You know, those studio deals never made sense to me in the unscripted world. I never understood people making studio deals in unscripted. Scripted, I get. Right. Right? Because you need money. Right. You've got to have someone come with a check who helps underwrite the show, who helps support. Right. But in unscripted, you don't need that. So I always thought, like, the studio deals were you're giving – I've been offered plenty of those. Right. And including coming back, I've been offered some sure. of them. Well, but, I would have thought you probably got phone, phone calls the second this deal got announced. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. You probably did. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I, I love the entrepreneurial spirit. Right. I love the eat what you kill. Mm. I love those nights where you're panicked about, oh, my gosh, what if it doesn't work? Right. Or the show I created, all of a sudden you, you, don't, you can't find the meaning in it. Mm. Or all, I love all of those moments. As much as I'm tortured, tortured by them, I crave them. Right. You know, it's, it, maybe it's a sickness, but it does kind of drive me. And it turns out that when you can go on a bike ride or play golf every day for the next 50 years, you don't actually do it as much as you thought. Right. And I have no hobbies. I don't work with wood. I don't watch football. I don't go to bars. I don't hang out with the guys. I don't do those things. So right. for me, this was my hobby. I just got paid well for it. Yeah. You know, so it's nice to be able to come back and have the love for it again and not have a giant mouth that constantly needed to be fed with hundreds of employees and shows and payroll and millions of dollars going out every week. And it's, it's very nice to kind of get back to the roots. Coach, you, you got me jacked up. You got me jacked up. I'll put you in the game right I'm, now. I'm ready to run through a brick wall right now. We Let's came, go. We came full circle. <laughs> we just came full circle. You're a better host than you think. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate it.